0: And as we get there, I want to remember back to the last few weeks. We took about three weeks to get through Mark chapter 13. And as we studied Jesus' teaching from the Mount of Olives, it's called the Olivet Discourse, and it started with the disciples. They were looking at the temple. It was a magnificent structure. And as they were looking at it, they commented to Jesus, and they said, look at how large, how magnificent this thing is. And it led to Jesus explaining to them that Though, yes, it was a magnificent structure, he told them, he said, it's going to be dismantled. It's going to be taken apart. It's not going to last. It looks glorious, but it's not going to last. It's going to be taken down. It's going to be destroyed by the hands of men. And he explained that to them and he revealed that to them. And he actually talked to them about the fact that after that, many will come and try to deceive by claiming that they are the Messiah that their Old Testament foretold them would come. He was... Telling them, hey, there's going to be people that are going to come. They're going to claim that they're me, but they won't be. And uh, not only that, but those who follow the real Jesus, me, himself, um, they're going to be persecuted and they're going to be falsely accused. They're going to be treated harmfully. And not only that, but there will come a time that will be a time of tribulation unlike any that the world has ever seen. The time of tribulation that Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, had foretold them about. And after that, creation, though it's very large and seemingly indestructible like the temple he was talking to them about, it itself will seemingly fall apart at the seams. Uh, everything that seems to hold together that we can trust in or we think that we can trust in, it's going to give way. God's going to let go and what we trust in is no longer going to be there. It's temporary. But what's cool about the things that are temporary giving up on us in this life is that they lead to us seeing the things that are not temporary, the things that are permanent, the things that hold true forever. God's word being the thing that, you know, he said the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will remain forever. That's Isaiah, the prophet that said that. So these temporary things, these corruptible things that we all too often put our trust in, they'll fade away but what is eternal, because of those things fading away, those, that kind of sets the stage for what is eternal to be revealed. And Jesus the Messiah, at His second coming, His return will gather together His people from all over the globe and from the farthest reaches of heaven. Those who are in heaven and on earth will be gathered together to the Messiah. And Jesus told His disciples that since this would all take place, since it will all take place, He said, watch and pray, be ready. Because you do not know when the time is at hand. You don't know when this is going to take place. He said to his disciples, Because you don't know, always be ready. You know, it's kind of like when you tell your kids, Hey, get all your chores done because I'm going to be home after work. Well, they know what time you're getting home, unless, of course, you're getting off work early. And if your kids are like me, when I was growing up, dad would leave a list of chores. He would say, Be ready because I'm going to be home. And then he would come home early and I wouldn't be ready because I was like banking on him getting right off at five and me having a half an hour after that to get my chores done. Wait till the last minute, right? Jesus told his disciples, you don't know when I'm coming home. So you need to be ready. Now we understand this, but for his disciples, this was kind of an odd thing for him to teach them. They might've been a bit confused. You see, Jesus had not even left once. He was still with them. So why is he telling them, hey, I'm going to come back? He's never left in the first place, nor had he yet laid his life down. He was still with them. So why would the Son of Man need to return if he was still with them? This very question leads us into Mark chapter 14. Remember, Jesus has told them all these things because he's preparing them for what I would consider a very traumatic thing that's going to happen. All of a sudden their leader is going to be betrayed into the hands, the government of man, and he's going to be put up on a cross and killed. He's going to be uh, put up to death, wrongfully accused because they called him a blasphemer. They're going to come up with all these weird things and say, well, he, he said he was going to tear down the temple. So we need to, you know, we need to deal with him. He's, uh, he's going to be dealt with and they're going to put him to death. So this is a traumatic experience that he knows is coming. So he's preparing his disciples. He's saying, hey, it's going to happen. Be ready. And so that time is closer than I think they even realized. So he teaches them so that once he's gone, because he will be gone, they will be able to remember the things that he told them ahead of time. And in remembering what he told them, they will be able to find comfort. It's like he's he's leaving a note for them. But as they read the note, as they hear what he's saying, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. But after it all comes to pass, they're going to say, wow, okay, so... We'll have to remember back, he told us he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be killed, and we kept denying the fact that that would even be possible, but now it's happened, what else did he tell us? And they could all kind of remind each other, remember he said this, remember he told us to do this, and so he's telling them all these things even though they don't get it. I think that's wonderful about the Lord, because I think oftentimes we think, when we come to the Lord, we need to know everything about him the first time that we sit down and read his word. But the reality is, is if we knew everything about God, the first time we sat down to try to just grasp what He's trying to teach us in His Word, if we knew everything that was in His Word, our heads would, number one, explode. And second of all, if He was easy enough to understand in our human minds the first time we we set foot in a church, then He wouldn't be a very big God. And the reality is, is that God is way beyond our understanding, yet He's condescended, He's come down, in the form of man, and he's revealed the heart of God the Father to us through his very actions, through his words, through his deeds. And then he inspired men to write it down so that we could every day just spend a little bit of time kind of trying to soak it up. If we were like the best brawny or whatever uh, paper towel in the whole world, and God was a puddle, we would dissolve in the middle of that puddle. We can't be be an absorbent enough piece of material to soak up all of who God is. And so he doesn't say, hey, soak me all up at once. He says, soak a little bit of of me each day. Don't be completely consumed by me, but rest in my presence. And as you do that, I'm going to teach you the things that you're able to receive right now. And the things that you don't understand, I'll help you understand them later. Just read them. Just take them in. And I think that's comforting because even His disciples that had been with Him for three years, His person, they walked with Him daily. They saw Him go to bed at night. They saw Him sleep in the bottom of the boat. They saw Him raise people from the dead. They saw Him heal a blind man and a deaf man. They saw Him do these miraculous things. They saw Him feed 5,000 people. They saw Him feed 4,000 people. They they saw all that. It's not like they, they forgot. I don't think you could forget those things. I just read about them and I can't forget about them. But they saw all that, and yet they, they still didn't know what he was trying to teach them. So how do we, as people that are 2,000 years later, think that we can just take it all in in one setting? It's too much to expect of ourselves, and God himself, he doesn't expect that from us. He doesn't say that. He's, he's like a father, a good father with his children. He's, he just waits for them to kind of soak up what he's trying to teach them. And when they go, what would you say to do again? He goes, and he tells us again Graciously. He says, no, no, I told you to do it this way. And the cool thing is, is that God is willing to deal with us in our finite minds, even though he's infinite. So as he tells them about these events beforehand, and he gives them time to try to grasp them, knowing that they won't anyway, he continues this week as he's on his walk to the cross. Remember, it's the last week of his life. And he's he's stepping up, and and he's in this setting that, we're going to describe here in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It says, After two days it was Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought, they looked, to see how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now as I read this, I I remembered back to Mark chapter 12, I seem to remember that this wasn't the first time that these men had all kind of tried to conspire against Jesus. They had already said that they were going to try and and get a hold of him so they could pretty much get him to shut up. They were tired of him uh, rebelling against what they thought was the way to follow God. And so they wanted him to be quiet. And not only that, they were tired of him stealing their followers. They were tired of him messing with their game because it was basically costing them money. It was costing them prominence. It was costing them everything that they lived for and they were tired of it and so they said, we got to get rid of this Jesus. And so as I read this, I remember that this wasn't the first time that they said this. And if you look in Mark chapter 12 verse 12 and I'll have it up there for you, it says at this point he had shared with them the parable of the wicked vine dressers. and in that parable he had spoken against them basically and then they recognized this. they knew that he was speaking against them. And it says there in verse 12, after he told the parable, that they sought, they looked for, a way to lay hands on him. Now, this wasn't to pray for him. This was a way to lay hands on him, like, we're going to get him out of here. They were going to, like, take him back to an alley and beat him up. or I don't know. You know, they they weren't just going to, like, you know, say, hey, we need to pray for you, brother. They were going to get rid of him. But they feared the multitude. That's why they didn't lay hands on him. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and, they, and, and went away. So Jesus said that, I want to make a point here because oftentimes we think, well, I didn't do anything about it, so my thoughts didn't matter. And Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that murder was more than an action. It was a thought behind the action. You don't actually have to murder somebody in God's eyes to be a murderer. These men were thinking about getting rid of Jesus. They hated him. And that very thought is what, Is what leads to an action. And because of that, murder is the thought behind the action. He said as he taught that if you hate someone, that it's murder. And he always told his disciples, sin begins in the heart. And I'll make that point by instead of trying to describe it, I'll just read from James chapter 1. I believe I'll have it up there for you. James wrote that we are tempted to sin. He said, no man is tempted by God to sin. Many times people go, Well, if God's so good, then why did he allow us the ability to sin? But James says that God doesn't tempt anybody to sin. But when we're tempted to sin, we are drawn away by our own desires that are already in us. So when a man is tempted to sin, it's not proving that, you know, he just couldn't take it. It's proving that he already wanted to sin in his heart. He had an evil desire. We're drawn away by our own desires and we're enticed by them. And then when desire conceives, kind of like when a mommy and a daddy get together and they, they have the ability to procreate, they conceive, right? Well, sin and desire, the temptation and the desire meet together and they conceive. And when they conceive, it gives birth to sin. That's the word he uses there. And sin, when it grows up, it comes to its final destination, brings forth death. That's what happened in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve were there. They were tempted. Basically, the same temptation happens with everybody. Satan comes along and he says, you know, God's done a lot for you, but he's not really been taking care of you lately. Why don't you do this thing on your own? Why don't you take care of yourself since he's not, he's not a really good father, is he? Same thing, he tempted Jesus. Jesus, you know, your father's not been taking very good care of you. Why don't you turn this stone to bread and provide for yourself? And it's the lie. It says, hey, I can provide for myself. I don't need God. And so the desire that these Pharisees were tempted with, they had, the desire they had was to have the glory of God all to themselves. They would be the partakers of the glory as God's chosen people, and they had no room for anyone to get in their way. And Jesus was doing this. But notice that this time, instead of just getting a hold of him, they sought to get a hold of him by trickery. They made a scheme. They came up with a plot. It was premeditated murder. It wasn't just like, oh, whoops, I accidentally, you know, because there was, there was a law written that, hey, if you're chopping wood with your buddy and the axe head flies off and you accidentally murder him, like God made provisions so that you could be found to be innocent. And if, you know, the, the dude's brother was like, hey, you killed my brother, there was a place you could flee to. It's called a city of refuge in the Old Testament, So God made provisions for this, but this wasn't like, oops, I accidentally killed you, I accidentally ran over you with a truck, or I accidentally, it wasn't anything like that. This was premeditated murder. And even our laws today go, hey, you made a plan. Uh, We're not going to give you a whole lot of lenience on this thing. So they sought to take him by trickery, and then one step further, they sought not only to take him, but to have him put to death. They hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. And they were like, we can't get rid of him. Let's kill him because he won't go away on his own. But notice that just like in Mark 12, 12, they did not do it. They didn't. They stopped. But why? Because they feared God and wanted to keep his commandments? No. It says they feared the people and didn't want to lose face or be found out for they, who they really were in front of the eyes of men. And there's a proverb about this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. It says, the fear of man is a snare, but those who fear the Lord will be safe. So if you fear people and you don't fear God, it's like you're setting a trap for yourself. You're allowing yourself to be trapped. And Jesus took this one step further in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, where he said, Hey, don't fear those who can kill your body. Don't worry about that. They can't kill the soul. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him, meaning God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We're accountable to Him. Don't worry about what your neighbor thinks. Worry about what the Lord thinks, and then He'll make things right between you and your neighbor. Or they'll get worse sometimes because He won't like the things you stand for. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about what other people think. And it's, isn't it funny that most people, especially I think about teens because... I just got done kind of pastoring a youth group and I remember being a high schooler and and thinking way much more way more about what my friends thought than what my parents thought. My parents loved me. My friends could care less what I ended up doing for a living or where I ended up living or if you know. Now, there I had some really good friends, but their opinions about what was cool and what mattered, they changed based on who their friends were. It was it was a never-ending changing cycle. So To be a friend with someone and to care more about what they think is actually kind of a bondage. You're kind of stuck with whatever their opinion changes to. But God doesn't change. The fear of God is what will keep us safe. So verse 3. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. Now, it's important to know that Jesus and his disciples were staying in a town by the name of Bethany. We've talked about this before, but it was located outside of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. They did this because it was the week of the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. So Jerusalem was completely bustling. It was full of people. And so the best thing to do is kind of maybe, in a way, get a hotel outside of town. Well, they didn't have hotels. They would stay with family members. They would stay with somebody they knew. Many times, because they were so hospitable as a culture, you'd stay with complete strangers, and you would get better um, service than if you stayed at a hotel or with somebody you knew. You'd you'd get treated very well, and it's the same way to this day. The Bedouin culture in Israel, if you go to stay there, they, they take care of you as if you're their own family, because it's thought that if you don't take care of those that come in, Uh, it's kind of a curse on you because you didn't do your duty to your fellow man. But they did this because it was the time of Passover. And it also just so happened that they had friends who lived in Bethany, so they stayed there. So during this time, they were at the house of Simon the leper, and as Jesus sat at the table, there was someone who came to see Jesus. And we find out in John's Gospel account that this was Mary of Bethany, who was the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. So this was somebody that he already had an acquaintance with. Anyway, so she... But what I want to make a distinction of is there's another time when a woman comes and she takes oil and she anoints Jesus' feet. She pours it over his feet and she's so thankful that he's forgiven her sin that she... uh, I believe that this was the woman caught in adultery. And she came to Jesus later. She took oil and anointed his feet... Because in that day, your feet would get very dirty in your sandals walking along the way. And she anointed his feet and then she washed them with her tears and with her hair. Which we think, well, that's kind of gross. But she was just loving Jesus with what she had. She didn't have a rag. She didn't have, much, she didn't have a bunch of soap. She didn't have any water. She was just weeping. She was so thankful. So she washed his feet with her tears and her hair. She was not worried about making a scene. But we find in John's gospel that this is actually Mary. And Mary in today's passage, she brought with her a gift for Jesus. But not just any gift. It was an alabaster flask of spikenard. Now, to us, this doesn't mean anything. We're just like, is that something you find in an antique store? What is that? What's a a flask of spikenard? Is that some sort of crazy root that you use for, you know, I don't know. But what I read about was that... um, Spikenard was a spice and it was an ointment. It was used, um, actually, herbs and stuff like that, spices and ointments were very costly and they were used as investments. You would purchase something like this, you'd save up your money and you would buy it and it would hold its value over a long period of time. So it was an investment and uh, because it was small and you could move with it because you lived in tents and oftentimes dwellings you'd have to move a lot, People would keep this, and it would be basically like a uh, a long-term investment, like a 401k. You know, many people today they'll take their money, they take a small percentage, they'll put it into a fund or an investment of some sort, and then that's kind of they set it aside as a nest egg for our retirement. Well, this is what she had. It was spike nard, and we're like, wow, you know, why would you keep ointment? You know, we're thinking lanolin or something like that. We like we would keep in our cabinet. We would never keep that because everybody's got it. It's at Walgreens, you know. But this was very costly. Now one man that I read about, his name was Pliny the Elder, he was from the first century, and he made a comment on this passage saying that the best ointments are preserved in alabaster. I don't know exactly what alabaster is, I think it's a material, and it was kind of like glass, you could see through it. But the alabaster points to the value of the perfume, and it being identified as nard suggests that it was a family heirloom, that was passed on from one generation to another. So it was a, an investment that they had not used for a long time. They were like, hey, we didn't need this. Let's give it to our kids. And so it was something that it meant not only a lot to her, but to her family line. So the main point is that this was quite an extravagant display of devotion to Jesus. Another thing to notice is that the flask was like a small bottle and it had a thin neck. It didn't have cork didn't have like a screwed top on the top. It was basically the only way to open it was to break the neck of the bottle. So you can't seal it again. It wasn't like Ziploc or Tupperware. It was something that when you opened it, it's opened. You got to use it at some point very soon because it would go bad. And so once it's open, there's no way to seal it back. Now Mark's wording indicates that she didn't just pour a little on him. And in that culture, it would have been customary in that day to put a dab of oil on the head of your guest's. It was a way of just blessing them. To put oil on their head was kind of like a way of, you know, like you go into some fancy restaurants, they'll have, um, they'll have like hand wash or they'll have perfume or deodorant or something where you can freshen up. Well, they would give you, uh, they would give you a dab of oil on your head when you walked in the home, just to bless you, and uh, they would do that when you arrived at their house. But she, she lavishly. In an, an overwhelming way, she anoints him with this oil. She poured the entire contents of the bottle on Jesus' head. Now, Think about if what would happen today if somebody would walk in their house and they're like, Hey, just a second. And they go back to the back room. They break this bottle. And you're like, what are they doing? And they dumped a bunch of oil on your head. You'd be like, what in the world? Now, are we on Nickelodeon where they're just pouring the stuff on your head as a joke? And you feel like you were the, the victim of a practical joke. But in that culture, who would they anoint? It would anoint kings. This was something very specific. She was symbolically anointing him, saying, no, this Jesus, he's not just some house guest. He's the king of kings. He, she recognized who he was. And if you think about it, he had just less than a week before this, he had just rode into Jerusalem like a king would on a horse or on a, uh, a donkey. But no one anointed him, not even his disciples that he had been telling, look, I'm, I'm him. I'm the one that was supposed to come. But Mary, however, understood what must be done when a king had arrived. She anointed him. Now, another thing you might notice is that this was her personal act of worship. This is how she worshipped Jesus. Now, we oftentimes think, I can worship Jesus in any way I want. Well, he's to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. But oftentimes, he gives us things and and he calls for us to give him things. But Jesus never forces anybody to give him anything. He doesn't say, you have to come and follow me. He says, I love you. What are you going to do about it? And Mary here, she shows her personal devotion to Jesus and, uh, and it was done by her. No one else did it for her. She alone could give this gift to Jesus. She gave something to him that cost her very much. King David um, was in a hard circumstance and he had sinned against God and and he came up to this mountain and there was this plague happening because of something that he had done specifically. And the Lord gave him an option on, on what you know, he could. Uh, basically, the Lord stopped the punishment because uh, David repented. And at that time, he was going to make an, an offering of worship to the Lord. He added in his heart, he's like, Lord, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for letting up on this punishment I was receiving. I want to worship you. And so he ended up on this place called a threshing floor, and it was this farmer's farm, basically, where the angel of the Lord met with him and explained to him that the plague was over and he was to worship there, and so he was going to set up an altar. He was going to make a sacrifice to God right on that hill. And he was going to build a temple there for God. And so he decided he was going to do this, and what happened was, as he decided he was going to do that, he talked to the person that owned the property. He said, hey, I would like to purchase this ground from you because this is a site where I want to remember that God forgave me and I want to set up the temple of God here. And it's the temple we're talking about that's in Jerusalem, uh, the site now. But back in that day, it was just farmland. And so he said, I'd like to purchase this from you. And, and the guy, of course, he's talking to his king. He says, you don't have to purchase it. I'll just give it to you. You're, you're King David. You're, you're our leader. I mean, you just came to my house. You can have whatever you want. And King David said, I will not give to the Lord. I will not set up a temple on ground that didn't cost me anything. You don't have to give it to me. I want to purchase it because when I give it to God, it's going to be something that that costs me something. And that's what she's doing here. She's she's taking what costs her something and she's worshiping God with it. Now, we can do this in many ways. Sometimes we do it uh, by our time. Time is very expensive, isn't it? We only have so much. It's one of the things that's not renewable. Once it's gone, it's gone. So to come to, to worship God at church or wherever you, know, you gather as a, as a church, that's something that God sees as a sacrifice. It's what we worship Him with. We give Him our time. We can give Him our talents. We can give Him our abilities. We can give Him our money. Whatever it might be, it doesn't have to be something specific. It can be just the way we worship Him. It can be how we talk. We can submit our language, how we speak to other people. To God, it's an act of worship. Everything that we do can be worshiped to Him, but it always costs us something. And so she here is worshiping Him, but she didn't do it in order to be seen by anyone. She didn't ask the disciples, hey, what do you think about the way I just worshiped Jesus? She came in and she did it, and it was done. Instead, she just did what she felt needed to be done, and she left it at that. And I think it's oftentimes funny that we think that we need to do it a certain way, and God's just like, hey, what do you got? I'll take it. Worship me. And, and verse 4 says, But there were some who were indignant among themselves. And they said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? It might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. This was effectively like three years wages. This was a lot of money. This wasn't like, Hey, you know, I, I didn't eat lunch today and I got you some oil. This was like three years worth of going to work. She took that amount of money and said, you know what? You mean more to me, Jesus, than this retirement or whatever. That was her act of worship. But you may have noticed that when you worship Jesus, and oftentimes when people do these things of worship, people that don't understand get angry about it. And we find out here that uh, this person, there were those there that witnessed her act of worship and they were angry. They were aggravated. They were like, why in the world did you just waste that oil? It could have been used. We could have got some money. But we find out from the book of John. I won't go there yet. Sorry. When we worship God, sometimes it gets under people's skin. They're okay with you if you want to worship Jesus on Sunday in a church, you know, away from them. But bring your worship into a public place or in a place where non-believers are. And they're easily aggravated, very easily. This woman had just worshipped Jesus in a way that could not possibly have been ignored. Imagine if you're in a room in your house and you're sitting with a bunch of people and somebody comes in and brings a big thing of Axe, deodorant or body spray or whatever. They open up the lid. You know, Boys are real bad about this. Man, they spray it on. They think it smells like they took a shower, but everybody can tell. They just douse themselves with aftershave. And it's like, whoo! You know, who drugged that guy in? Where's he been, you know? But you take that, imagine, if you will, your kids walk in the house and they they take a big thing of Axe and they dump it on somebody. The whole room is pungent. It's like that smell's not going away for a while. It's bad, you know? and, and, And it can be that aroma that comes off of perfume being used uh, I remember being, well, I won't go there. My my dad uses this stuff and I don't remember what it's called, but it's like every time he comes out of the bathroom, I'm like, woo, that stuff's strong. I don't know if it's Old Spice or what it is, but you know, it's just a lot. I'm sure it wears off. My mom really likes it though. So, you know, that's why he wears it. <laughs> anyway, but when we worship Jesus, it puts off an aroma. That's my point. When we worship the Lord, it puts off an aroma. And Paul spoke about this in Second Corinthians Um, chapter uh, two, verse 15 and 16. He says, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to two groups, we're the fragrance of Christ, but to the two groups, we smell differently. He says there in verse 16, to the one, we're the aroma of death leading to death. If you've ever been around a non-believer and you've talked about the Lord, they just, they can't stand you. It's overwhelming. They're like, oh, you make me sick. Just Jesus talk. It's driving me nuts. But to those who have been saved by Jesus and they walk in that truth, you're the aroma of life. You're encouraging to them. It's like living water. It's like you're in a desert and they just gave you this big old Gatorade. And you're just like, keep telling me more. This is exciting. This is encouraging. It's refreshing. In other words, to those who are being saved, we are the aroma of Christ, the one who is worthy of worshiping for what he has done in order to save us. He's worthy of these most fine gifts that we have to offer him. But to those who are perishing, those who are not saved, we're the aroma of death. All they can see in us is what we're giving up. And they're going, that's not worth it. Jesus, why are you not doing this thing? Or why are you giving up this retirement fund? Or you know, for this lady, they're going, why did you waste that? That's a lot of money. But Jesus said in verse 6, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Well, this man that had apparently dealt with what was being said, this person was none other than Judas. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear a whole lot of people naming their children Judas anymore. I think it's for this reason. He betrayed the Son of God. You know, even non believing people don't go, hey, you know what? I want to name my kid Judas. Now, there were some bands, right? Judas Priest and, you know, stuff like that. But I think it was. I think it was supposed to have a negative connotation. But we find out in John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, that it was Judas who was indignant about the expense of the oil that was used on Jesus. But we find out that his indignation was really, it was just selfish. Because John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us, it says, This he said, saying that it was too costly and they shouldn't have wasted it. This he said, not that he cared for the poor. He didn't care about poor people but because he was a thief and he had the money box. He was the treasurer. And he used to take what was put in it. In other words, he was stealing from Jesus' ministry. So he didn't care about the poor people. He's going, why didn't you sell it? We could have put the money in, in the box. You know, And then I could double dip a little bit. I could take a little bit for myself. So he didn't care about anybody but himself. So no wonder this aggravated him that she wasted the oil. But Jesus said to her in verse 6, To them in verse six, he says, Let her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you do not have always. Now a lot of people take offense to this. Jesus isn't saying don't help poor people. He's not saying don't reach out to the the people that are that don't have. If you have and you have the opportunity to, to bless somebody, do it. Do it in the name of Jesus. They might get saved because of it, but what he's saying is, I'm only going to be here a short time. She's done a good thing. She hasn't wasted it. She recognizes who I am. No one else does, but she gets it. She's worshiping me, and Jesus never says, don't worship me. Never once does he say, don't worship me. Now, many people, he said, hey, don't tell anybody yet because it's not my time to die yet, but he, he never says, don't worship me. If you ever notice in in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are a couple figures that say, hey, don't bow down to me. And it's usually angels. Don't worship angels. But Jesus, he's, he's worthy of worship. He's, it's okay to worship him. He's God. Verse 8 says, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We're proof positive. We're reading this message. This woman, Mary, she's done a good thing. We get to learn from her example. You can't be too lavish in the way that you worship the Lord. You can't give too much. And if he wants you to give more, he'll provide for that. He wants us to be good stewards of what he's given. But it's interesting to see the difference between Judas, who gets aggravated, and Mary, who should be the one that's aggravated. She's the one that's poured out. She's the one that's worshiped. But because she gives up this thing and she says, Jesus is more important to me than this family heirloom or this spikenard, this 401k, you put it in there, what sometimes can be tempted to become more important to you than the Lord, she was blessed in her worship because who is she commended by? She's not commended by Judas. He hated it. He was aggravated. She wasn't commended by the disciples that followed Judas or Jesus. (laughs) She was commended by Jesus himself. Jesus told his disciples, don't don't worry about worshiping me. Don't worry about the praises of men. If they praise you, you'll have your reward. But if you do and you worship in secret, what's cool is that Jesus himself will be the one to respond to that and say, hey, and he'll reward you openly in heaven. So verse 10 says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priests directly after this to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. See, they were looking for a way to betray Jesus, to get him out of there, to have him killed. And so Judas, one of his followers, decides, I'll betray him. So they don't even have to do the dirty work. They can just pay this guy a couple, 30 30 pieces of silver, and their hands are completely clean. They're not clean, you know, because they paid him. Um, But then he sought how he might conveniently betray him. He wanted to look for a way to betray him, conveniently. He didn't want to get his hands dirty either. Everybody wants to get rid of the guy, but nobody wants to have blood on their hands. Well, none of them will be innocent in the end, but I guess what I wanted to point out was that because Judas couldn't get out of Jesus what he wanted, you find out his motive was money. Many people are pierced through through many sorrows because they, they try to gain money, and that's the most important thing to them. But Judas Iscariot, because of his love for money, he went to the chief priest to betray him. And he found out he could get the one thing that he was most interested in, that money. And so because of that, he sought for a way to conveniently betray the Son of God, the one who could save him, and the one who had loved on him. Spent three years teaching him the same things he taught all the other disciples. But Judas, from this point on, becomes an instrument of Satan because he will not worship Jesus. And because of that, we'll transition next week and we'll kind of see um, that from that point on, Jesus' life will be given up as a ransom for us. It had to happen, but man, I wouldn't want to be the instrument that gets used to betray the Son of God. But look at Mary and see her example and be encouraged. Worship the Lord as He, see, as he leads you and learn of Him. But as He gives you the opportunities, give all, all the praise to Him, even in your workplaces. Some people are going to be completely put off, but there's going to be one person in there that's going to go, wow, they actually have a relationship with God. That's, that's refreshing. I, I've been looking for that, especially during the holiday season. There's many people going through depression because of family things, because they don't have enough money to buy enough stuff, and because of all these other things that don't really matter. Jesus Christ is the reason that we celebrate this holiday, hopefully. And as we do that, what you'll find is you'll find joy and peace, even if you don't have any of the other stuff. This woman had this big, huge thing of spikenard, which everybody else saw as important, and she couldn't wait to pour it on Jesus. She couldn't wait to get rid of that thing because then she would have Jesus and she'd be able to go, look, I don't have an inheritance in this world, but I've got a a heavenly inheritance. That's where my hope is. That's where my trust is. So Father, thank you so much that you are worthy of more than any riches that this world can offer. Thank you that your servants worship you in spirit and in truth and you don't ask anything of them other than what you've already given them. You know, I think it's kind of cool. We can be MacGyver. We can see all the things that you've already given us and our talents, our time, our service. Uh, sometimes just a, a worship song as we're driving to work. All you're asking is that we love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with our mind, with all of our strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And by that, You are seen through us. People see that we don't worship money. We don't serve another master, but we love you and we thank you that you were willing to give it all up so that we could have fellowship, so we could have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit with you. And so, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas and as we come towards that day, Lord, make our focal point Jesus Christ. Help us to tell maybe even one person, hey, you know, I know you're good. I know you're down right now, but But you can have Jesus if you have nothing else. And that's really the most expensive gift that you can offer someone. And yet we don't have to pay for it, Lord. Thank you that you gave freely to all who would receive. Lord, may we be looking for those who are willing to receive. And may we tell them the truth. And may the truth set those people free from depression, from anxiety. Lord, may they find hope and peace in your son. Father, I thank you for all that you've done. And I thank you for this evening to worship you. Pray that you'd be with us as we sing this one more song. In Jesus' name.